you know, I'd kind of gone through school and I didn't understand how important purpose was to me. So, you know, if leadership is taking initiative, so where do you want to take that initiative in a purposeful way to live your life, right? So when you look back, what are the, like, where are you spending your time? Where does all of that add up? That's Deborah Wilson, president-elect for the National Association of Independent Schools. She retraces her career journey on this episode of the Leadership Backstory, growing up in Connecticut, attending an independent school, and moving to new parts of the country for college and law school, all shaped her career in leadership philosophy and led to a distinguished career working with thousands of independent schools as an association executive. Now she's been named to lead the National Association of Independent Schools starting this summer. There are lots of leadership lessons packed into this episode. I'm Peter Barron. Brendan Schneider and I learned a lot, and we know you will too, so let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Peter Barron. And I'm Brendan Schneider. And welcome to the Leadership Backstory. So, Brendan, uh, we got a special guest. We've got a friend. We also have somebody who just made a lot of news in in the space. We're pretty excited to have her on here. Deborah Wilson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to see both of you and hear your voices. Yeah, and just, yes, exactly. And, you know, so Deborah, you are currently the, the president of the Southern Association of Independent Schools. You were just named the president of the National Association of Independent Schools. So do I call you president-elect? Like, what's the title right now? I'm, I'm like, I think we should go for Empress of the Universe. I feel oh, there like. you go. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's president-elect, although it's, um, yeah, it's I'm, I'm still me. Well, congratulations. I'm super excited for you. I can't think of a better person to, you know, steer NAIS into the next, you know, into the years ahead. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I think it's, um, we're going to, we're going to have a lot of fun and we're going to do good work. It's going to be great. Yeah, no doubt. And we're going to get there. So I can't wait to, to talk a little bit about NAIS at the back end of the pod, but the front end, you know, the whole premise is for us to retrace your, your story and to understand like, how did you pick up leadership lessons and, it's so interesting to see how you're coming back home and like how those leadership lessons are going to apply there. But I know that, you know, you're a Northeast kid. You grew up in uh, Connecticut. What, what town in Connecticut again? I, I, well, it just sort of depends which parent you're focusing on. I grew up ah. in uh, Norwich, Connecticut, and then my mom um, actually had a place just outside of Mystic. And then she also lived in West Hartford for a while too. So Kind of, I, I call it the other Connecticut. It's uh, sort of southeastern Connecticut, closer to the Rhode Island border. Yeah, beautiful country, though. By the way, yeah. oh my God, the, the beaches there are just unbelievable. Um, and I know you went to school at the Williams School, which is on the campus of Con College, and just you know, I, I went there my my part of my first year, so I know I know that I know I know where it is. Uh, you were a camel, Peter. I didn't know you were a camel. I was. And now the weird part is, my wife uh, is a graduate of Connecticut College, but she started the year after I left, so. Just weird, weird, weird timing. But that's um, good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, she did not want to meet like nineteen-year-old Peter. That was probably not the. I, my husband <laughs> and I just we never should have gone to college together. It was much better that we went to different institutions. So yeah, I, I with think you on that. So. One. I think so. So talk about that. Talk about like those early years, and uh, you know, I know that experience. Obviously, you're you spent your career dedicated to independent schools. But I'm curious, like, was there a connection back to Williams? Was there something there that kind of percolated an interest? Yeah, you know, um, so my, I have kind of an interesting sort of family story background. All of my great grandparents came from Poland. Um, and as, as one did in the beginning of the 20th century, kind of come over from Eastern Europe, go through Ellis Island, 
end up in a small mill town. They were in Jewett City, Connecticut. And um, so all my great-grandparents worked in mills. And my grandparents, um, my, I was close with actually all of my grandparents, my paternal grandparents were around a lot. And um, my grandmother, by the time she was 12, had lost both of her parents. And um, she actually finished sixth grade and went to work in the mills to support her stepmother and half-sister. Um, sort of blast pandemic, Spanish influenza, um, and and then her husband, my grandfather, he actually went to school through eighth grade, and then also went to work in the mills. And um, and they're kind of well, both sets of grandparents. But I'll focus on my paternal grandparents. They're they're sort of the definition of the American dream, right? My parents were first generation to go to college. Um, my dad had has three siblings, and um, they grew up in a cold water flat in a mill town, kind of like in mill housing. My grandparents didn't own the house until they were in their mid sixties, um, and just truly remarkable people that believed in education. Um, all of my there's a pretty famous story in my family that my grandfather said, "You know, there's not enough money for the girls to go to college," and my grandmother said, "Oh no, like if the boys are going to college, the girls are going to college." And I actually here in my office I have. Um, my grandmother's wedding picture and they used to keep money in the back of the frame like so you can still see the slit where they kind of like hid the money in their house and um you know and all four kids went on to college three of them ended up with um doctoral degrees of some kind my dad was a physician and he really wanted to go back to help the families that helped them so he norwich is right next to Jewett city and he was a gastroenterologist he was training at mayo um, probably could have gone anywhere, but decided to go back home and take care of people. And so, you know, he was kind of a small town doctor in some ways. But, and we went to public school through sixth grade, John Moriarty, um, which I think now is a magnet school or a charter school or something that didn't even exist back in the 70s and 80s. And, um, and when it came to middle school, then junior high, my dad was a little worried about the local junior high. But I think, you know, he, having grown up, you know, in really challenging financial circumstances, he always said that that actually, you know, financial mobility was easier than social mobility. And he got very focused on sending us to Williams School. And it was a hard transition. Actually, my brother, older brother and sister were both there before I got there. But it, um, it was funny to go from a kind of a small town, you know, and it's not, I mean, Connecticut's a pretty compact state, right? So Going to New London from Norwich, I don't know, it's a 25-minute drive, but it's a big difference going from, you know, a K-6 public school in Norwich to your classmate's family owns New England Coca-Cola bottling, bottling company, right? It's a very, very different situation, yeah. very different scenario, and I'd, I don't know, I'm probably a slightly clueless adult, but I was a kind of, just as a kid, that wasn't something I paid a lot of attention to. And I remember my sister, like sort of older sister, intervening about what clothes I could wear to Williams, like because she she had already traveled down this road. Um, and but it was a really supportive environment. Not too long after I started, so I started in seventh grade. My parents um, actually separated, and so in eighth grade, my older sister went to college, my brother went to boarding school, and my parents like officially split, and it was just my dad and me. Um, and she used to, my dad would bring me to school, what I, what I call head of school early. So I would get to school at about 6.30, 6.45 before my dad would do procedures. He would drive me in. And the head of school, Stephen Danerberg, 
you know, was always there at that time. And um, he used to blast Diana Ross or Pachelbel's cannon, like through the school, depending on what mood he was in. And, um, but we became friends, you know, like he would, yeah, we get there early to do our homework. And, um, you know, and he would always kind of, you know, he'd see me sitting there and he obviously knew my older siblings. My family has a long history at Williams now. And, um, you know, and just kind of that network of the head of school and then my teachers over time, you know, kind of giving me extra support and keeping track of me at, you know, probably the first first time in my life I really struggled with something, you know, both changing environments to a new school, but also just sort of that, that very 80s type implosion of my nuclear family. Um, you know, it was a pretty, pretty special place to be. So from there, you left New England and you went down south and... What was that transition like? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty wild. Like, I still think about that. I I have sort of, and, and, and Peter and Brendan, I know you both share this fascination. Like, I'm really interested in people who don't do what they're supposed to do. Um, <laughs> you know, and everybody in my high school, yeah. you went to Boston, you might have gone to New York. If you were a little bit radical, you might have gone to D.C., but you didn't really leave that whole area. I mean, there's always a couple people end up in Philadelphia, but generally speaking... You could take the, you know, the Amtrak pretty much anywhere most people went to college. Sometimes, you know, you get in northern Maine. Um, and I think I just wanted to get out. And my brother had gone to Emory. Um, there was actually a big family fight about that. My dad didn't know anything about Emory. Like, you know, he thought my brother was making a huge mistake. Um, and my brother's a couple of years older than me. And so I, I really, I had it in my head. I wanted to go south. I think just to, just to get out of our part of the country and just go see something different. And my brother had a good friend who grew up in Memphis, and he suggested I look at Swanee, which is the University of the South. It's on a mountain in Tennessee. It's hard to come up with something more different than, right. you know, coastal <laughs> Connecticut or yeah. mountain in Tennessee. Um, but, you know, Swanee, is a, it's a pretty, it's an amazing place. It's probably the safest place I've ever been in my life. Like, it's, then it was 10,000 acres. Now I think it's 14,000 acres. And um, I was a I was a horse trainer and rider, and so it was a great place to continue doing those things. And but I mean, it it was, you know, it's a completely different part of the country. I mean, I I highly recommend to anyone. Yeah. You know, if you've only lived in like one place to go do that, and I'm I'm a little on the young side for my class, so I was actually 17 when I showed up on mountain in uh, in Tennessee, and um. And sometimes, like, I think my, my classmates, they were very tolerant. They didn't really know what to do with me. And that was okay because I didn't always know what to do with them either. So, um, but, yeah, I've lived in the South a good chunk of my adult life. And so, um, yeah, it was it was quite a transition. But, you know, it, it, was un, it was pretty similar to independent schools in some ways. You know, I got to, I actually taught riding to local boarding school students, to college students. I would ride anything that was donated to figure out why somebody donated them. Uh, I had a radio show, like did a, did a whole bunch of different things. You know, it's a small liberal arts college. It's, you know, they need students to run stuff. So yeah, it was a, it was a great experience, but it, it, it was really far from coastal Connecticut. Did, did your tendency to be a leader start to come out there? Did you hold leadership roles there? You know, I don't, yeah, I mean, I guess I did. Um, when I co-coached the team my senior year and, college and I was teaching writing the whole time on the newspaper like all that kind of stuff um I I find the term leadership to be like as a kid that was very intimidating to me um and I think it's because I had two very successful older siblings and I sort of felt like 
I sort of grew up a little bit in their shadow and I couldn't really live up to that kind of reputation that they had. So, and I, I think about this a lot, actually, when we talk about leadership with schools or in other industries, like how do we, how do we use that phrase? Um, so I guess it did, but it wasn't something that I thought about as a child that I was like a natural leader or, you know, even as a young adult or getting into, you know, my late teens and twenties. When did that start to emerge? Like, when did you start to kind of focus on this concept of leadership? Because I know after, after Swanee, you went to get your law degree at the University of South Carolina and then ultimately spent some time at the Department of Justice. I'm curious, like, how did the leadership concept start to emerge in your head? Like, when did you start to feel that? Um, you know, I think it was, I mean, when I realized that leadership was, it was more about initiative and getting people to buy into initiative. And that I had in spades. I mean, I, um, I mean, I've talked to all kinds of people doing like bad idea things and I just learned <laughs> like how to talk to people doing good idea things, I guess. I mean, you know, and it's, and it's fun, right? Like it's when you see a need that needs to be met and you, step up and you fill it and you get other people to to work on that too um you know i I see it in my kids too when they initiate things on their school campuses like they and they're realizing that that's fun right like that that's when you're trying to help people you're really trying to do something productive like when we stop talking about leadership and start talking about okay like what needs to be done what gaps can we fill you know, I think that's when I when I realized that those two things, because that's, initiative and helping people and filling those gaps and saying, yeah, this really needs to be done and who else is going to do it. When I realized that's what people were talking about in terms of leadership and just that stepping forward in engagement, then I was like, oh, yeah, like I can do this. Yeah. Um, it was much more complicated than that. But I think that's and yeah, I mean, that some of that happened in high school, but a lot of it, frankly, happened in things we don't talk a lot about, like summer jobs. You know, right. I mean, just just those, you know, everybody's had those jobs where, you know, you're the, I mean, I'm a little bit compulsive. So, you know, I would organize, I worked in like the home department out of Filene's, right? Organize like all of like the stock room because it was making me crazy. Right. Um, right. You know, I mean, and, right. you know, and then I yeah. know where everything is and yeah, I yeah. can kind of lay it out and all that stuff. And so um, when you start realizing like those little things, those are leadership steps and getting ideas about systems and how to lead and talk through those things. Yeah, but it, you know, it's, um, it, it's a, it was a slow blooming concept for me, I think, because I never saw myself included in that definition. You know, after Department of Justice, you, you joined NAIS and you had a, you know, a really, you know, deep kind of connection to the organization there for, for quite a while. Like, how did you enter an NAS? What was your role when you first arrived? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of self interventions. Um, <laughs> I was at, I was at DOJ. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes you just not do the right thing, right? Um, yeah, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you know, like yep. you're doing it. You're like, I can do this. This doesn't feel like me. And yeah. and DOJ was not me. Um, and I work with some great, smart people who I really love and I stay in touch with. And there fabulous litigators. I mean, really amazing stuff. But I was like, this is not, this is not my jam. And I think it's, I I really realized at that point, you know, I'd kind of gone through school and I didn't understand how important purpose was to me. So, you know, if leadership is taking initiative, so where do you want to take that initiative in a purposeful way 
to live your life, right? So when you look back, what are the, like, where are you spending your time? Where does all of that add up? Um, and I really thought about the things that really mattered to me were hugely influential in my life. And one of those places was education, particularly given my family's history. And then, um, and then horses. I'd spent so much time training horses from the time I was pretty young. And, um, and so I was actually offered a job at NAIS as the, I think it was associate regulatory counsel or I was the first lawyer they ever hired. And then wow. I was actually offered a okay. job as a head of government relations for this horse association. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Through the pandemic wow. would have been a lot less stressful than managing yeah. issues in education. Yeah. Um, but they only offered two weeks of vacation, although I had a killer office. You should have seen the office for that place. That place, um, yes. But, you know, instead I, I went with NEIS um, and, you know, I started off doing regulatory work. But like I said, they'd never hired a lawyer before. So I just started, I think, approaching things from a different angle when I was writing about stuff. And I, I love code law, so regulatory work was a happy place for me. So reviewing new regulations, writing about regulations, how they impact schools, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, eventually, you know, some copyright questions came up about a few things. And I, I did a lot of copyright law in law school. It's a fascinating part of law. And um, and so, I don't know, within a year, I was a staff attorney um, because I just started kind of branching out. And I was really fortunate because I was working with some some great folks, Jefferson Burnett, who's obviously still there. He was doing government relations at the time. Uh, Jeff Moraxon, former head of school, who was COO at the time, um, I think he was there when I started. Peter Relic um, was the president of, of NAS, and they were just super supportive and really also encouraged me, um, particularly Jefferson, to connect with attorneys who'd done some work for the association before. So I kind of built out my own kind of support group. Um, and just started doing a lot of outreach and just reading and learning as much as I possibly could about law in education. In particular, our weird, weird little ecosystem. We're not, most education law that you read about is around public schools. There's not a ton around independent schools until yeah. I showed up in the IS. Right. So, yeah. You know, you and I have had a conversation before and you, you just said something that brought, brought it back. Like you had talked about how you've built this support network. And it sounds like it was something that you did early on at NAIS, but you know, you introduced this concept of like your personal board of directors and, yeah. I, and maybe I'm jumping ahead. I don't know, but like that has stuck with me. I've written about it. I've thought about it. Like talk about like how, what role that has played in terms of helping you kind of scale that leadership ladder. Yeah. That's, um, and I really, I wish I could remember like where I first heard that term. Um, I don't think I made it up. I'm pretty sure I read it someplace, but, but it kind of like you, like it really, it created a hook in me. And then I realized like, I mean, I, if you're fortunate, um, but I think if you look back, you can think about different people who've impacted you. And some of them might be mentors. Some of them might be colleagues. <laughs> some of them just might be good friends is what my, my mother-in-law would say, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you say if you speak it with love, right? So people who, you know, just in terms of like laying out some reality for you, yeah. but doing it in a place of support. Right. Right. So, you know, I mentioned Stephen Dannenberg, who is the head at Williams. He could tell me hard things, but do it in a really supportive way. And so, like, people like that in your life, and as I've gotten older, I I tend to seek out people who I know will have contrary opinions to mine. 
or, you know, who will start moving things around in ways that make me feel uncomfortable. But it actually, it helps make ideas a lot better. I mean, I have my yes people who I just, right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, you know, they're going to help me like go bury bodies if I need it or whatever. Like, right. you know, they're, but, but those people who, you know, will help throw rocks at things. And I'll, and I'll literally say, I need you to throw rocks at something for me. Um, but, you know, in this application process with NAIS, people who really encourage me, who will kind of talk through it, have a theory that, you know, you try not to look down too often because that's how you end up there. So like, you know, when I'm looking down, they're like, okay, like you need to keep your eyes on the horizon. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and remember what your big picture is. Remember what you're doing in terms of purpose, like why you're doing the things that you're doing, particularly when things get hard. And so on my personal board of directors right now, I'd say I probably got about seven people, maybe eight. Um, you know, I don't think they should get together without you very often, but they're, um, <laughs> yeah, I'd love that. You just record that conversation, but, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. You never actually really want to know that, but yeah. you know, but it, and it's interesting how they come from different walks of life and know you from different places. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the way it's come together for me. And you know, some folks you might not talk to for 18 months or so, but you know, when you, when you need to check in, you know, they're right there for you. So yeah. yeah. Do, do they I, know they're on? Oh, sorry, Peter. No, no, go for it, Brandon. I was going to say, do they know they're on your board of directors? Um, you know, that's a good question. I don't think I've, I've ever put it to a yeah. lot of them that way. But, you know, I mean, I they definitely know they're in my do or die group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly you have a good relationship with them, but uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're just not I having mean, it, your uh, board meetings. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't send them, you know, swag around the holidays or anything, but, um, Maybe I should do that. I haven't really thought about that. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Deborah Wilson's why I wonder what that would look like. Oh, yeah. Um, that'd be awesome. But, you know, but I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure I serve on their board of directors in, yeah. in more than a couple instances too, right? Sure, yeah. And it's, um, you know, and it's interesting because we, we support each other, but I think it also, you know, it's part of that broader network. I think, you know, there's been a, a lot of research lately on the importance of network, both in terms of support, but also like how we move things through and get things yeah. done. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I love about just this time in human history is, you know, you can have good friends you've maybe only seen in person three or four times, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Brendan, my board of directors, yeah. like they're not all in the same time zone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you yeah. guys aren't particularly yeah. physically close together. No. Like, you know, it's, um, and when you can kind of get away from that concept of geographic proximity and you're building these connections, building these networks and, and just enjoying the fact that you have that, that span and just that diverse support network. I mean, it's pretty remarkable and pretty amazing stuff. Do, do you find that you have members of your board who are outside of the industry, out of your industry? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And talk about the importance of that. Yeah, I love, I mean, I love them because they, and occasionally I'll bring them in to meetings of the industry and like they make people's heads hurt. Um, <laughs> but I love them because they make my head hurt too. Like yeah. they, like that doesn't work. And they're like, no, it just doesn't work because nobody's ever tried it in education. Like everybody else on the planet is doing this except for, you know, you folks in the right-hand lane. Um, you know, and it's it's good. I don't always agree with them, 
but it, it helps me think about what's happening in the bigger world. Right. Um, and I think that's really important. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of data right now on students and low levels of engagement, particularly in higher education. Like when we think about education, we don't we don't really think about, okay, does this feel relevant to kids right now, particularly as students get older, they're getting into high school, they're getting into college. Like we need to know what's happening in that bigger world. I see it, my son's at college now. You know, and he gets really excited by real world application. I mean, he, you know, if you ask him about high school, he'll tell you that it's just something he had to get through so that he can actually go learn stuff that seems applicable to him. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, those connections, those folks who are not, they don't live and breathe our space all the time. They're, they're like a breath of fresh air for me. And, and it does help make ideas better because, you know, they're talking about that bigger sphere. So, you know, I know we, you spent, how long were you at NAIS the first time around? It was like 20 Almost years? Almost 19 years. 19 years? Yeah. Wow. And, and you worked on, you know, you worked for some very big personality leaders, you know, folks who were just kind of industry changers, all the things. Like, what did you take from some of the, from that experience? Because, you know, you're now leading an association of hundreds of schools. Like, what were the things that NAIS taught you? Yeah. Um, you know, it was so interesting. Like, you know, so so Peter Relic was the original president that I worked under, and we didn't overlap for very long. But it was like my first encounter with like a CEO type person who I guess wasn't the head of school or college president, right? So, um, and then I just kind of learned like hierarchy, like, okay, what does all of this look like? And then Pat showed up, you know, Pat is like the king of shaking up the snow globe. Like he's and that's got- Patrick, <laughs> Pat, Pat Bassett. Pat, Pat Bassett, Bassett, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so Pat drove me crazy in some really basic ways, you know, because Pat Pat enjoys um, a little chaos. And, and like, and I think he probably turned me into a little bit of an agent of chaos um, <laughs> because I realized it was actually kind of fun. But of course, as the lawyer at the time, like, you're not interested in chaos. Um, but learning to work with Pat, Pat and my dad were actually not dissimilar. And there's probably a lot of things therapists would say about that. But, you know, <laughs> Pat Pat doesn't like no. Um, and like once you learn that, like with how to manage up a little bit, sort of. Mm -hmm. So Pat had an idea. There were a couple of times I just had to say no. Like one of them, he just kept telling me he wanted to offer this benefit. And I'm like, Pat, it's only available to schools. And he's getting into it with email. And so I walked down the hallway, brought the tax code with me. And I'm like, Pat, like, this is the section of the tax code. I can't change this. There's, this is a no. Um, but everything else was, we can't do it quite like that. But like, here are three options. Right. Here are the upsides and downsides of each of these things. And it, I think it, it taught me how to think from a management perspective and, and to kind of start backwards, right? Like, what, what are you designing for? Like, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And, and understanding that with him, and he actually, he gave me the biggest compliment because this is really hard for me to do. He said, you know, even when I know you're not totally on board, like it's not necessarily what you think we should be doing, I have no doubt that you're going to do everything you can to help me make it happen. Yeah. Um, and learning that and understanding that from a leadership perspective and how to help yourself be heard without being... Abrasive is not the word that I'm looking for, but like, you know, being able to articulate your concerns, come up with some solutions, get those built into an ultimate solution and and do that in a managing up kind of way was hugely helpful. Um, Pat is also, he's so good at 
he was really good at just governance and management. You know, so before board meetings, we'd really talk through, okay, what's going to happen at this board meeting? You know, what do we really want to get in front of people? What are the outcomes that are going to happen? Uh, you know, like he was just really good at pulling the team together, helping everybody understand sort of what was going to happen next. I mean, there was always an air of unpredictability. There was always <laughs> something you didn't know that was going to happen that did happen um, that I'm not even sure that he knew was going to happen. But, um, you know, and that that was pretty incredible. Um, and then John Chubb, who was with NES for a sadly short period of time, he, so at that point, you know, I was doing, when John came in, I was doing all the legal stuff. Um, Don and I had done a lot of governance work together. Um, that's Donna Orm, who's the current president of NEIS. And then Sir John Chubb started, and he, you know, he was very interested in centering more around the student and looking at the, you know, student experience, learning and teaching. And at the time, all these calls were coming into me about um, peer-to-peer sexual assault, student anxiety, depression, suicide issues. Uh, you know, the general counsel in NES, you get a lot of pretty interesting calls. And so I said, you know, John, something's going on. I've been doing this for a long time. I've never seen this many calls of this nature all at once. And he said, well, go go look around and go figure it out. And, and John had a very sort of professor-grad student kind of relationship thing, which made sense because I'm pretty sure he taught in higher education. And so I kept coming back and he's like, no, that's not it. That's not it. And so finally I was like, look, this is all around kind of the purpose of education and how do we know our students are well? Like what what, what are we trying to do when it comes down to, you know, helping create healthy humans? Um, and he's like, that's it. And so we really started talking about student <laughs> wellness and higher ed actually hit this a lot earlier because they were seeing the mental health issues on college campuses and they're much more data driven and they've got, you know, they have a captive audience, right? And so it really helped me start leaning into what was happening around students. I mean, I drove the whole summit around student health and wellness, started that work at NAIS, and then also did a fair amount on learning and teaching on the same topic. So that was kind of fun to be working with somebody who lets you kind of take that initiative and run with it. I mean, even if my lane you know, it was definitely legal, definitely around risk management, which triggered in a lot of other parts of schools and around governance, but to start really thinking about students and helping schools think from like a risk management standpoint. I mean, I can help a school manage a crisis, but it's much more interesting to start further up and say, right. you know, something's going on with kids before we get right. to suicidal issues and things. Like, let's talk about mm-hmm. down the pike about how do we help kids not get to this. It's that like, it's that permission to be curious, right? And do some inquiry yeah. into initiatives. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And it's huge, right? And then I was with NAIS and Nirvana for, I think, only two years, maybe. I'd have to look back. And Donna and I have always worked very closely together. Um, you know, and, and, and she's a, you know, a different kind of leader in some ways. Um, although kind of probably an interesting combination of the two of them. Um, but, but particularly like really thinking about and caring about our leaders and the issues of leadership, particularly around women and people of color and that sustainability of leadership and how it overlaps with governments. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody knows more about those things than Donna does and, you know, working with somebody who has that kind of passion for it in such a deep 
So you, I mean, clearly have worked under some pretty amazing people over the years. And then, you know, you had an opportunity to, to be a leader of a really, you know, important organization that's accreditation and has lots of members all over the, all over the South and, and other parts of the world too. I'm hearing all these lessons, like what, how did you apply them in your time, you know, during where you are right now at Southern Association? Yeah. Um, you know, first I freaked out a little bit. Like I didn't know how to find my voice, honestly. Yeah. Like it was yeah. really hard for me to find that voice. Like, who am I now? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and I kept telling my team, um, I said, you know, you didn't choose to be uncomfortable. Like I have actively chosen this. And, you know, I think self-awareness is a huge part of leadership. And I recognize I move pretty quickly. I can explain myself better than I often do. And so knowing those things about myself, you know, when I first came to the organization, you know, the first thing I did was like day seven, I facilitated a board meeting with my whole brand new board, half the people I knew, the other half, I, I don't think I'd ever really met before other than the job interview. Um, and so we really started with, so what don't you touch in SAIS? Like what, what's the secret sauce here? Uh-huh. And, you know, we did a lot of other things, but because you really, you know, you don't want to accidentally throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, so like, let's, let's start here. Had a lot of other really great and insightful conversations and inputs and things just from them and what they're looking for. And then I did sort of the same thing with the staff. Um, and, and there were some things, you know, there's always some things when you start a new job, like you don't understand, but as a leader, if you start moving things around too quickly, you get voted off the island. So they, they didn't really do staff meetings. And I didn't, you don't just show up as a new leader and be like, hey, in this completely virtual organization, you know, let's throw shape, have more time on Zoom all together. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we don't do that. And I understand that. I'll do other kinds of meetings. And then in December, you know, it started a good number of new things. You know, I started July. So December comes along and I worked with a firm that I really like. They do executive coaching and, um, and had somebody basically talk to each individual staff member about, you know, their perception of change, the pace of change, like what they'd like to see more of, less of, differences, that kind of thing. And so she anonymized it for me. And then I kind of walked the staff through it at that December retreat, just saying, like, this is what I'm hearing. Does this sound right? Does this resonate with you? Um, and one of the things that she heard was, you know, we really need to meet more as a staff because now there's so much going on. I was like, ah, it's like now we have staff meetings. Um, and we only do them every other week. We're not doing too many meetings, but but that feedback loop kind of helped me and to build some of that initial trust too, but also to regulate myself um, relative to the team. And it's just such a good, strong team. It was a good, strong team before I got there, but I mean, what a great group of people and really capable of doing amazing things. And I, Peter, I was doing all of like the, the good things you're supposed to do on coaching and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And then the pandemic hit and it all kind of went out the window. And I was like, okay, now, now we're in crisis mode and we kind of just have to rock and roll. So right, we're yeah. just going to do the stuff. Um, yeah. Well, you know, now we're, you know, I guess post-pandemic, right? I think that's probably the best way to describe it. And now you've got all these lessons from SAS. And, you know, as we as we start to, to close the pod, like you're going to an organization that's what, three or four times the size of SAS? Maybe yeah, five. I mean, it's... 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, we've got nine people at SAIS, and I think NAS has like 50-something people now. So five, um, 5X yeah. plus, you know, 16, yeah. 17, 1800 members, whatever the number is, I don't, I don't know what, what NAS. Yeah. So you've got a lot of constituents across the board. What are some of the things you're thinking about as you head into this next phase? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm sort of going back, so I know some of the people, yeah. but I also don't know the journey that everybody's been on for the last four years. Right. Um, and it's been a heck of a four years, yeah. right? Like, I'd say. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, You're right. I, I've been honestly pretty fortunate. I've been in the South. Most of our schools were back on campus sooner. Our campuses tend to have, a, you know, just have a lot more space. Um, yeah. So my experience has been very different than theirs. And so some of it is just figuring out, okay, where is everybody right now um i think so there's that internal piece and so just catching up with people getting to meet new people who have joined the team figuring out kind of where they are what their impressions are and what what things are already moving and what's in progress um and um and going pretty deep like i like to know everybody who's on the team i don't tend to you know i mean i i think really fabulous ideas kind of come from all over the organization so really getting to know the entire team and spending some time with the leadership team just to understand like what their vision and direction has been um same with the board but then also spending time out on the road just talking to schools coast to coast i mean i've been pretty fortunate over the last four years i still hear from schools around the country um at seis we launched the head of school database and that was a national project headsearch.org um so I've got some feeling for that, but just to get out there and really talk to schools, I I think as a community, honestly, we need to have a little more joy and fun. Um, I mean, I know we're facing pretty serious things, but we're also in a fabulous field. We just get to do awesome things in our schools. Um, and to take some time to actually appreciate that and reflect on that and find the joy again in education, I think is going to be really important for us the next few years. Um, and I mean, it's like, it's a privilege to get to do this work. And I think refinding our center on that front and really thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we center our work in schools around students and what they need now and what they're going to need for their futures, I think is going to be really key. So kind of have all of those things. Yeah. Plus a lot of tactical things that people keep telling me I shouldn't be thinking about or worrying about, but it's just <laughs> what I do. Um, you, can't sh you can't shut the brain off. Hey, yeah, that's as, right. Yeah. yeah. So as we yeah. close, you know, if you had a chance to, you know, do it all over again and walk down a different path, would you take the different path or would you walk down the same one? Um, or would you, you go know, back to horses? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I had a great opportunity coming out of college. It's the one regret yeah. in my life was I didn't yeah. go ride warm blunts in New Zealand. But, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I I would probably do it pretty similarly. I um, I was actually talking to a coach yesterday. He's actually based in Amsterdam, but he was in um, South Africa when I spoke with him. And I was just talking about, you know, it's a gift at this time in human history to be able to live our lives with the flexibility and purpose. Like you, you can build a very different life than humans have ever seen before. And not everybody has that opportunity. So when you do have that opportunity and you can 
take a hold of it and appreciate it. And that's pretty amazing stuff. And I've had that ability in my life, um, particularly well, having three kids, doing the things that I've done to get to have the leadership journey that I've been able to take and to help people solve important problems um, and hopefully, you know, help schools avoid some issues over time. Like, that's a pretty incredible thing. And I don't, I don't think I would trade that for anything. Maybe even riding warm blood to museum. <laughs> that's great. Well, well, Deborah, final question. Where can people follow you or learn more about you? Um, so I'm somewhere on Twitter. I think it's like Deborah slash P slash Wilson. Um, and, um, you know, and so you'll find me at, at SAIS and that one's just, you know, it's, that's easy. Deborah at SAS.org. I don't know what my new NEIS email address is, is going to be, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah. Well, awesome. Deborah Wilson, congratulations on yeah. the next phase of your journey. Congratulations on everything that you've done up to this point. And, uh, I know Brendan and I are really excited to see, you know, where you take an ass in the future. Absolutely. Well, Thank you. Well, you know, if you have questions, don't, don't hesitate to hand them, send them my way. Um, nobody else is hesitating yet, so you two shouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Deborah. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host The Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.